Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we wanted to have a special episode because this is coming out the end of June, and June is celebrated as Pride Month here in the United States and and all over the world. Yeah, we wanted to kind of have Chris actually bring up some points from the things that he's studied in the past in grad and undergrad, how queer representation and queering the stories and finding it in mm-hmm. different pop culture, media, uh, geeky mediums. Queering, if you're not familiar with the term, is basically a technique that came out of queer theory in the late 80s and is used as a way to kind of challenge heteronormativity by analyzing places in a text where gender, sexuality, masculinity, femininity, these things can be challenged and questioned. Mm. Yeah, just bringing some of those things up and seeing how some of those ideas apply to the geeky properties that we do spend so much time with as well. Yeah, and and, and to participatory fandom, which mm-hmm. we're doing mm-hmm. as a podcast. Yeah. So I guess before we get into our discussion we can set the scene a little bit first recognizing that the reason we celebrate pride month in june is because of the 1969 stonewall riots led by many trans people of color and other people in the queer community after being continually targeted by the police do you want to say riots or do you want to say uprising i don't know both. I know like a lot of people have taken pride in that term mm, of like, no, the first pride was a riot. Yeah, the so language it could be either. Language is important yeah. and, and, and ever changing. But yeah, so, I think that's a really, really good point. And I didn't want to also just have this episode be, you know, what are our favorite queer relationships and our headcanons and our, and our ships that we have? Because that's great. That's a really wonderful part of fandom. But I think that the political aspect of pride and of protest and how that's been involved is also an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And also for ourselves, I'm queer. I've actually kind of been thinking about recently like woman versus non-binary. So yeah, I'll just say I'm queer and I use she and they pronouns. Yeah, and I'm a cisgendered heterosexual man. Yeah, you're one of those. I'm one of those. <laughs> I am, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, why don't we get into the discussion? Okay, sure. To kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit, you know, this came up because you were the one who, who suggested us doing a Pride episode. and You're welcome. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a great idea, but I also wanted to make sure that, you know, there was a reason why I am talking about this, because mm-hmm. I am not someone who identifies as queer. I'm probably a one on the Kinsey scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not here representing that community in that mm-hmm. way, but it is something that I've been very interested in. When I was an undergraduate in particular, I, I took classes and things on gender and sexuality and a really great class on race and gender and sexuality in comic books, which kind of helped mm. spark this in me as someone who loves comics. And I think it's a really important way that we talk about fandom and talk about how representation exists because it's, I think, much more complicated than just having the representation of a 
someone from a particular culture or ethnicity or race, but there's a lot more involved throughout kind of the way that, that this has changed over time in queer representation in especially geeky properties. So yeah, one of the things that, that definitely comes to mind when I think about this is just how systemically queer representation has been suppressed over time. And you can see this in, in all sorts of media. You know, I, I remember growing up in the 90s when Will and Grace was on TV. And I mm. understand now that that was kind of a watershed moment for queer representation on television because it was a main character who was queer and who was, it was not just a kind of vilified or sexualized kind of, of, of character and representation there. And so certainly with TV and movies to, I think, a lesser extent, it's become mainstream in a way since I was young. And so for me, it, it was finding out about how this was done in comic books that really affected and helped to widen my understanding of the way that queer representations existed in, in all other media. In comics, uh, starting in the 1950s, there was what's called the Comics Code Authority, which was essentially a self-censoring organization that was put up because, well, for one, comic books at the time were doing all sorts of awful stuff with, like, horror comics that were really gory and sold to kids in large part. Mm. But it also had a very explicit engagement with fears of over-homosexuality. Why is Batman hanging out with this young child in tights and going on these adventures? There's no woman yeah. in the in the Bat family, you know, which is mm. why actually a Batwoman was created and brought into that family. Mm. Um, the horrors. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the stipulations of the Comics Code was that comics could not feature homosexuality. And mm -hmm. this was seen as required if you wanted to be able to sell comics. The thought was that if you didn't have the comics code, seal of authority, seal of approval on the front of your comic, then you wouldn't be able to sell anything because no store would want to sell it. No newsstand would want to sell it. No parent would buy it. You know, it, mm -hmm. it was showing that you are immoral. Deviant. Deviant. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other things that couldn't be included were vampires. Uh, <laughs> naturally. Naturally. Uh, drug use. Uh, you know, lots of other, other kinds of things. But in the 1980s, things started to change. And that's when things started to, uh, you know, underground comics really started up. And at the same time in mainstream comics, this is when like coded representation was really big, where there were creators who would be unable to have explicit relationships. And the X-Men's a really good example of this. Chris Claremont, who was writing throughout most of the 80s, he has since made clear that the female friendships, the gal pals, the close <laughs> roommates, all these things that he had, yeah. it was always his intention to say, there's romantic things going on here. But he could, just couldn't do it at the time. He was not allowed to. And so... Yeah, I think it's this interesting element where there's these mainstream representation where, for the most part, it's not there at all. In some cases, it's coded. In many other cases, the fandom starts to build their own ideas of what is and is not canon for them. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the, you know, what was often known as underground comic book scene of creators who were actively bucking the mainstream guidelines and saying, no, we're going to create what we want and... That is where queer comics could really come out and become uh, a real force. 
Thankfully, in the 1990s, by the 1990s, the comics code was just completely not a thing anymore, and representation has changed a lot since then, uh, in similar ways as it has with TV. But I think that th I kind of lay this out, not only because it's something that I'm interested in, passionate about, I love X-Men. Um, X-People. X-People, thank you. <laughs> but That part hasn't changed yet. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> but I do think that similar kinds of trends have happened in, in other media, too. And, and that's kind of what I, I wanted to explore, because particularly in the fandoms that we we talk about on the show, but also other geeky fandoms, I think have been going through similar kinds of changes because oftentimes these geeky fandoms are still seen as like children's or family-friendly kind of material, mm -hmm. which makes society even less likely to be willing to have queer representation in them. Mm -hmm. Which is so disgusting in a way because mm -hmm. so many of them are centering around war, murder, fascism, you know, all of these terrible things. But no, it's the queerness. That's what we have to shield that, our children from. That's what's scary. Exactly. Yeah. We can have all the toxic masculinity you want, but girls holding hands or kissing? Oh, no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think that, that it makes sense that, especially considering something like Harry Potter, where the single quote-unquote canon queer character that we know of, at least, is Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. That was done in a way that, sure, we have authorial intent that says that he's queer, but there's no real grappling with what that means for him as a character. So, yeah, that goes into questions of kind of what are the messages that you're saying about queerness here? The message that it kind of comes out with is that the sexuality of some of a character is unimportant to the way they live their lives or what we know about them. Or how society treats them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is not a message that is true or that is helpful to the way representation should exist. On the other hand, at least there is some intent there. <laughs> because you look at Tolkien, you look at Star Wars, you know, these were not things that ever, the creators did not imagine queer folks living in these, these worlds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But particularly in a multimedia world, those things are difficult. Uh, the, the absence of engagement with it in The Crimes of Grindelwald, the last Fantastic Beast movie that came out. We see Dumbledore looking in the mirror ever said and seeing Grindelwald, mm -hmm. but that's really it. I mean, which is pretty overt, but it's still not explicitly exactly. stated. And so, you know, who knows what they'll be doing with that series moving forward, but yeah. this is something that I guarantee is in high-level meetings of their figuring out how to grapple with this. Absolutely. And it is interesting, too, because of the five series that we talk about regularly, the Hunger Games was the newest one, I think, mm -hmm. right? And even that was written over 10 years ago, at least the first two books. And then going back to the 30s and 40s for uh, Lord of the Rings, it spans so many decades, but not that much has changed mm -hmm. in these big fandoms that become mainstream to really influence like culture and other pop culture totally yeah and i think that that suzanne collins is a good example there too because in this the ballad of songbirds and snakes there is some queer representation mm -hmm. but i 
see it similar to the queer representation that was in The Rise of Skywalker, where it's just there, but it's not commented on. It doesn't have, again, any impact on the way that these people navigate the world that they're in. It's explicitly stated, but yeah, they're such a side character that it doesn't really have any weight in the stories. Again, there are some characters that I'm like, oh no, but they're queer. <laughs> but again, it's not explicitly stated, so totally. that goes into the realm of, of headcanons. Yeah. And that, I think, is is one of the most fascinating elements of this, is, is this idea of participatory fandom. In literary criticism and, and studies, it's the idea of what's called death of the author, mm-hmm. where, from what I understand, uh, someone who did not study a ton of that myself, mm-hmm. but from what I understand, it's, it's that once the book is out, it's like the author is dead. Nothing that <laughs> they say or that they in- say that they intended actually matters to the way that you read the text. Mm-hmm. And that your reading of the text, as long as it's true to what it says in the text, is valid. And I mean, it's all interpretation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is important in this realm in particular because there have been all of these systemic ways in which queer representation has been suppressed. And that means that to search for that kind of representation requires that interpretation in a way that other kinds of representation or or engagement with media doesn't in the same way. Absolutely. So, for example, um, like with Harry Potter, uh, as we've mentioned, I think, before on the podcast, that there's a whole community of people that read Snape as trans, Mm -hmm. that read Hagrid as trans. And that's not something that I ever would have thought of personally. Now, when I read it, I can notice things that I wouldn't have noticed before and be like, oh, I see how this element could be a part of that Mm -hmm. um, and how that could make certain parts of their experiences and stories deeper or more you know like in in snape's case more traumatic and you know well i mean both cases yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean yeah let's be real um so so yeah it's 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 definitely an interesting experience to go back and read things looking for things that you didn't pick up on as being a possibility the first times you read it yeah yeah and that's also so important i think in building communities you know, the internet has given us all sorts of great new abilities to connect with those who are have similar experiences or backgrounds or fandoms or, or whatever it might be. Um, you know, before this, this, it was zines and underground magazines, which also still exist. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these kinds of things, conventions, these still happened even before we had the internet. But now it's, I think, luckily been able to become more easily engaged with because Mm -hmm. of the way that that we're connected through the internet yeah absolutely it's interesting because it obviously as a queer person really bothers me (laughs) that it has to be this let's find it Mm. here instead of like it just is here yeah at the same time i understand the capitalist society that we live in which also bugs me a lot that for certain things they're like if this is gonna cause people not to buy it i don't know all the conversations that go into the people who are editing or the people who are script writing or whatever it is to do it for money i do not think that that is a good reason so no but i understand why it happens but yeah it's a problem and it makes 
it so that queer people reading these things that they're seeing themselves in the stories and in the characters is something that they can do but that a lot of the world doesn't recognize is a valid way to see those characters or to understand the stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and speaking of death of the author, sometimes as a fan, that can be important for you to maintain that fandom. I'm looking at you, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> yes. I mean, arguably, she is the modern author who has done the most to challenge the idea of death of the author because she keeps running Pottermore and she keeps putting out more and more of the things, these things that she considers canon mm -hmm. but are not actually part of the original texts. Once a year, she'll tweet actually trying to still build on the narrative. And at the same time, she's also building on awful things in society with transphobic comments and, frankly, just really awful behavior, which I understand yeah. why that has turned a lot of people off of their fandom for Absolutely. Harry Potter. Yeah, I, I know that for me, it's something that I continue to navigate. What's been more helpful for me, at least, has been trying to separate her from the fiction, mm -hmm. from the narrative, and say, what are the messages that we're getting from there? Where are they good? Where I think there's a lot of that. But also, where is there bad? Where is there things that I can see, oh yeah, she has a very heteronormative view on this that maybe is insightful for her later transphobic revelations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But it can be helpful for fans to be able to try to take the text on its own terms, particularly when people have become so vitriolic mm -hmm. as, a, as a creator. Yeah. It, it is an interesting way I, I understand when people do walk away mm -hmm. but or make decisions to no longer put money into oh absolutely a yeah mm -hmm. and i also understand how some people can stay while denouncing the problematic and in some ways violent viewpoints of others totally and i will say that while i agree that death of the author can be really useful particularly because misogyny and homophobia and racism are so rampant and have been so rampant so it's sometimes difficult to find literature and narratives that are not, at least in some way, affected by that. Still, I know that knowing and learning about J.K. Rowling's transphobia helped me be more insightful over how I was reading her writings in Harry Potter. I completely agree, yeah. And maybe only folks who were already marginalized and oppressed were able to read before. Or mm -hmm. I shouldn't say were, they were the only ones who were able to. They were the ones who had done so, but their voices weren't silenced in a way that made it so they were not part of the discourse about those kinds of things. And it didn't touch me, and I didn't pick it up on my, my first reading as a cishet white guy. So yeah. sometimes those things can, can be important to your reading as well, even if it is to further challenge and question things. Yes. One last thing that I think is, is also compelling, at least to me, is the fact that so often these geeky media deal with fantastical elements of the world. It could be science fiction, it could be fantasy. In some way, the world is radically different from ours. And that engages with this kind of participatory fandom because in a way it opens up the imagination. If someone can wave a wand and make something float and the laws of gravity are challenged 
If you can take polyjuice potion. If you, exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, even more explicitly, if you can take polyjuice potion, if you are a shapeshifter, if, Mm -hmm. you know, these different things that challenge our conceptions of the world, society, culture, and then specific gender, sexuality, and, and other kinds of identity, I think that that is always been really fascinating to me, too. You you all should become patrons because then you get access to our <laughs> recommendations in which oftentimes we've talked about things that we really appreciate because they use the fantastic elements of these worlds in ways that give insight and imagination to new ways of living in bodies and embodying your identity. Mm-hmm. A conversation that I was having just recently um, in a online talk that I went to about queering Japanese American history that had like a breakout group, uh, a couple of them that were only for queer people. And our group, by the end, we concluded that we should have queer obone kind of festival that has to do with ancestors because one of the people in the group had done more research on Obon and originally it was more of a young person's thing and so all sorts of things would happen (laughs) at uh, these events and then there was intentions to change certain things and then these festivals were made quote-unquote family friendly Mm. you know in a way and it's kind of stayed that way um up until this point yeah the group was talking about like this this event that's like transcending time so it just makes sense when you're talking about transcending strict categories of time why can't we talk about transcending strict categories of gender sexuality and all of these other things as well yeah that's amazing yeah i know right Well, so I guess, why don't we talk a little bit about places where we see queer coding or we read, interpret characters through queer lens? One that definitely comes to mind for me is Lando Calrissian. (laughs) Yes. Donald Glover may have mentioned at some point that he was playing him as pansexual. Which I can definitely see. Totally, yeah. (laughs) Particularly in his performance. Yeah. But it definitely, that's I think one of the rare ways in which a kind of a retcon or a prequel can help illuminate the existing text because now when I see them in Empire I think that's interesting to think of Han as Lando's ex Um, (laughs) and so they're you know the the tension in their first meeting (laughs) totally yeah but but the feelings that come from Mm -hmm. oh we we were friends or we were close but we had a break of some sort yeah and now you're flirting with my partner like (laughs) it's all I think very but and then there's clearly a loyalty involved too and yeah I just think that that's uh you know, the, the property of, of who got what in the breakup and <laughs> Han got the Millennium Falcon. You know, I, I think that's a, an interesting reading there. Totally. How about you? I mean, there's so many, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in the queer Harry Potter community read Luna as either lesbian or pansexual, but I've always read her as asexual. Mm. So it kind of bothers me when I see like some 
people shipping her. <laughs> exactly. With other people. I'm like, but no. <laughs> <laughs> like, I could see her being in a romantic relationship mm-hmm. with someone, but not in a sexual relationship with someone. And so that's funny sometimes when, like, your own headcanon comes up against somebody else's headcanon. Yeah. You're like, no, <laughs> but of course she's ace. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. I think a really good example of queering a text would be with Remus Lupin from Harry mm. Potter. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, the the wolf star Remus and Sirius fandom is strong. It is out there in force. Yes. But I think it's important to understand it if you've never read those characters that way, where some of these things are coming from. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, this would be fun. This would be cute. But like there is actual textual clues, not that that was intended by J.K. Rowling, but that there are clues that you can pick up on. One would be that Remus and Sirius gave Harry a joint Christmas gift or birthday gift. I don't remember. It it was a gift. Totally just platonic friends do all the time. I mean, they can, right? So these could be people's arguments like, well, friends could give gifts together. Like I have done that before, pull Mm -hmm. the resources and do it. And we know that about Remus that he doesn't have much money but also it is such a coupley thing to do as well like totally. almost all couples will give a joint gift to a person together so particularly to kids like <laughs> this is you are among the only family type structure he has mm-hmm. which you know very well and you also know how to do magic you could literally enchant a napkin and give that to them as exactly. a gift which costs no money yeah so yeah. it's like it's a very coupley thing to do totally also i think that there's some interesting metaphorical readings for Lupin as well. There's ones we've talked about in the past with him being a werewolf and if this is some sort of metaphor parallel to AIDS, mm-hmm. like that's, it does, It can't equate in a way that isn't like, oh, this is a curse or, you know, like exactly. just very problematic, ableist he ways was, of looking at things. He became a werewolf through predation by an older male. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I think there are other ways that are interesting, like that the Wizarding World doesn't see werewolves as human because they're not human in the way that society sees as acceptable. Mm-hmm. They are other and therefore dangerous to their concept of humans and when we look at how parents would be outraged to have a werewolf as a teacher at Hogwarts, that's basically based on this fear that he could turn them and endanger them. And and that really does make me think of the 1978 Briggs Initiative in California when it was pro- a proposed law was on the ballot that would make firing gay teachers mandatory. Hmm. Thankfully, because of tons of campaigning, especially by people like Harvey Milk and people that he was in a coalition with, it it did not pass. But some of the rationale, quote unquote, (laughs) behind this proposed law was that gay teachers would either abuse or try to convert the kids. Yeah. And I think that some of the same type of supposed rationale would be behind having a werewolf as a teacher so yeah I I think things like that are 
important to think about. Again, it's, it's not a perfect metaphor because being a werewolf is you were infected mm-hmm. at some point in time, which obviously is not true <laughs> with queerness. And, and as you mentioned before, oh, this older man, you know, hurt this young boy and that's why he's that way. I mean, so these metaphors, especially in a fantastical realm, can only go so far. Yeah. And I think that at times that becomes a problem with genre fiction as well in mm-hmm. that because things have to be fantastical it means that things become more dangerous where you're a werewolf or you know you're a mutant you can face certain oppression for it which mirrors the oppression that people face in our society but at the same time the metaphor is inherently incomplete because these things also make you more dangerous mm-hmm. which is the kind of thing that's leveled against people who are oppressed in our society, but isn't actually true. Yeah. But when you're a werewolf or when you have optic beams that come out of your eyes, yeah. you actually are dangerous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there is this power dynamic that you can harness and be this huge force, which mm-hmm. isn't entirely untrue of, of, of different oppressed groups because we've seen that throughout history, but... Basically, all of these oppressed groups are still oppressed to some degree. It's just maybe a little bit less yeah. or maybe just in a new way. But that's, yeah, kind of an example of, of how you can queer a text. I mean, I'm not an expert in this at all, but kind of how I personally do it. Because I think that there are really kind of potent parallels to nobody wanting to hire him, mm-hmm. which happens for queer people in our world in how he is is more important than how well he does his job or basically anything else about him and his transforming body transitioning body is seen to others is not okay because it's okay to be on this binary of either human or magical creature you can't be in between you can't be outside of that so I think yeah. that there are a lot of really strong parallels or potentially meaningful parallels to be found with his character specifically, but with all sorts of characters through the series that, that we um, talk about. Yeah. Of course, we should acknowledge that at least we have Korra. Yes. Which, again, it's one of those not explicitly yep. stated. There is the hold, the hand-holding at the very last moment. Mm-hmm. But they... In the show, they did leave it open to interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. Which, besides Songbirds and Snakes, that would have been the most recent, Yeah, I think, yeah. that came out. So hopefully all of our geeky fandoms will get increasingly <laughs> queer as time goes by. Yeah. Um, I mean, since at least one in every ten characters should be queer, <laughs> at the very least. It's got to be one in the Fellowship. <laughs> oh, yes. These nine men hanging out together. <laughs> totally. Which, yes, we've talked about in, in our love episode, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, a separate one as well, reading Frodo and Sam through that lens and even the historical lens of soldiers mm-hmm. and same-sex relationships they'd be in during that time and then coming back home and what that meant for them and everything, yeah. um, which I think is a really interesting reading of of their relationship. Totally. Yeah, uh, another great fan element is that I've seen 
Zuko in fan art with basically everyone. <laughs> like, he's, it's just like everybody wants Zuko in a relationship with someone else. Yes, yes. And Whoever your second favorite character is, yeah. be it side Zuko. <laughs> Unless it's Iroh. No, not that yeah, one. Of course. No, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure there's fan art of that. But of course, we're not, yes. That's, no. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And I see them all, too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Him with Sokka. Him with Katara. Him with Aang. Him with every rendition. Yeah. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Which is amazing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, to to kind of finish up, to get to a a takeaway, perhaps, (laughs) I kind of put together what I think of as, as some kind of compelling questions for queer readings. And queer representation. The kinds of questions that, you know, if you're interested in this or if this is just something that, that you naturally do, but these might kind of help focus the way that you read things and, and the way that you see representation in this way. And then, of course, I would love to get your input on ways that these Tell questions Tell you all the ways refined. you're wrong. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I think that the first and, and you know, arguably most foremost is who is making this thing? Absolutely. Because it's one thing to have queer representation, but it's another thing to have queer representation by queer creators. Mm-hmm. One example that comes to my mind is is Sense8, where mm-hmm. we have the Wachowski sisters, trans women, making the series where a trans character is one of the main characters and where concepts of bodies and sexuality and gender are very much challenged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Schitt's Creek, another great example. Absolutely, yeah. Very good example. Yeah. Daniel Levy being creator, writer on it. And yeah, you see how his character in the show, his queerness is done very differently than sometimes how other queerness is done when it's written by straight men. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the next kind of question is, yeah, what representation is explicitly included what is textual on the page or in the show beyond maybe even just holding hands you know are people in relationships are they expressing their affections are they actually explicitly acknowledging what their identity or or orientation or whatever it might be is Mm -hmm. and then beyond that is what is being said about those characters and their queerness This comes into ideas of, yeah, having one gay character or one lesbian character or one queer character of any type means that they are then standing in for all experiences there. Yeah. Um, You know, it it still is a tokenization. That ending kiss in Rise of Skywalker, you know, it's, it's like a random kiss between a side character and another woman who you've literally never seen before Mm -hmm. it's like the briefest moment of visibility basically saying like look a queer couple does exist in the star wars universe (laughs) but to me that like that's not representation at all in my opinion i think representation has to you know, as the lowest bar ever, it has to at least be between named characters. <laughs> <laughs> but also it must involve depth and complexity of characters and characters that are well-rounded so that it's not just a caricature, a trope, a 
token or really just feel like pandering. Yeah. Which is frustrating. Not that we don't want queer relationships on screen or in books or whatever to be brought into the mainstream to some degree, but at the same time, it's like the queer community has never been mainstream mm-hmm. and, and there's power in that as well. Part of that doesn't just get watered down mm-hmm. into digestible ways for the rest of society to see that it's like, okay, or, you know, well, I like this character or whatever. So not to say that, like, there shouldn't be a bunch of queer relationships and characters and everything. But like, yes, it needs to be done well and very much preferably written by people who are a part of those groups because they better know how they want to be represented Mm -hmm. and not in some like sanitized way for the masses. Yeah. And I think that your note on it being complex is important too, because it's one thing to just have a character on screen, but it's another to have that character have narrative agency and to have that character have complexity and a backstory and be defined as more than just their queerness when you only have the token representation when you have a kiss being the only thing that's there then what are we saying that they're defined as Mm -hmm. um and that their inclusion actually is is entailing yeah and i think it it gets to the point where it can get tricky because one you don't want to have a character that like we were talking about with dumbledore it seems like his sexuality has nothing to do with his character Mm. even if you're ace it still has something to do with how you operate in the world or how other people interact or want you to interact with them but at the same time you don't want a character that like them being queer always has to be this huge topic Mm. of conversation like you need it to strike the right balance so that they feel like a person and not a message you're sending absolutely yes yeah and then for those properties that don't have explicit representation yeah what is things that can be read as such and what do those messages mean and and there i think is where a lot of the interpretation comes in that speaks to you and oftentimes i think those become so passionate and so argumentative at times (laughs) because they are tied into people's experiences Um, Mm -hmm. and it allows people to kind of see themselves in texts and and i think one of the reasons why those are often so widespread in these texts uh particularly things like harry potter Mm -hmm. is because it means so much to people and because they see themselves in the books in in different ways yeah and i and i think your your second point there of what is explicitly said i think really tells us something about our own lens that we come Mm. into everything and and how we operate in the world when things aren't explicitly said we're making an assumption Mm -hmm. and what are the assumptions that we're making and also if you want to challenge the way that you've read things in the past if if you realize hey i read most characters are straight i maybe that's not good you know i don't we're all in different places in our journey (laughs) away from homophobia and transphobia and patriarchy so because these series are so popular there are so many resources of people who are from different queer communities that have written things about it whether it's 
an actual article that's been published somewhere mm. more mainstream or something that's more like a Tumblr blog or fan fiction or a podcast from the voices of queer communities, you know, because you don't want to like read things into characters from some sort of ignorant perspective. That's, that's not great either, yeah. right? Yeah, for example, like the next time I read Harry Potter books, if I wanted to try to read Snape as trans, there are things out there that like talk about it from people writing from their own perspective and experiences that can um, have more insight from a legitimate source. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, something that I would do by myself mm -hmm. because I, I don't have that experience. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to this special episode that we're doing in honor of Pride Month. We hope that it is something that is interesting and compelling and maybe even validating for you. And we hope that you continue to engage with these kinds of discussions and the need for greater visibility and equity. And not just in Pride Month, have this continue on throughout the year and analyze how much of a heteronormative lens that we have mm -hmm. like even me a queer person operated in a fairly heteronormative lens probably until the last five seven years or so so like this is instilled in most of us yeah Just, thanks for saying that yeah well thank you so much for listening what will we be doing next week so we're going to be returning to Harry Potter, and we are going to be looking at the series through the theme of justice. Yes, indeed. You can find links to our social media or our website in the episode description, or you can send us an email at geekbetween at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your favorite queer ships, your, mm -hmm. you know, the way that you've had queer readings of your favorite media or, or the media that we talk about here on the show. Just send us a message or post on our on our social media pages. We also want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. And we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.